bracing for impact. We need to anticipate that as many as a third of your workforce at any one time may become ill with COVID-19. What businesses are being asked to do with Omicron bearing down on BC. Seniors isolated once again. She has told me and said, I hate saying this to my granddaughter, but um, I want to die. I feel like I'm in prison. I'm in isolation. The heartbreaking consequences of another round of visitor restrictions and a major roadblock for returning travelers. You can't book a test. You can't have it happen within the 72 hours. It's, it's absolute mayhem. The growing challenge of finding a PCR test to get back into Canada. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Chris is off tonight. The province is calling on schools and businesses to come up with contingency plans as large portions of the workforce are likely to be off sick with the Omicron variant spreading right across this province now. As Richard Zussman tells us, it is one of the most significant shifts we have seen in the province's philosophy around fighting the virus. In the Battle of British Columbia versus Omicron, one winner is emerging. In the tug of war of transmission, Omicron has the advantage. Public health has no more tricks up its sleeve, leaving the solution largely in the hands of individuals and business. I want to get out of the order business and uh, talked a little bit about that today. This is different. Um, this strain of the virus is different. The big difference is how transmissible the variant is. So even with restrictions like closing gyms and clubs, the virus is still spreading. And because of that, the province does not believe large-scale lockdown measures will be what keeps people safe from COVID-19. It is not just one thing. It's not about a rapid test. It's not about a mask that keeps one safe. It's about doing everything we can. For individuals, that means staying at home if you're sick and ensuring that you're keeping distance when you can and making those decisions to stay home if you feel uncomfortable. For businesses, it's about putting back some of those safety measures, including capacity limits and potentially requiring vaccine for staff. Even a small business I'm, I'm frequent change the sign on the door from six to four to three. So, you know, these changes are happening. The goal is to keep hospitals, grocery stores and schools operating. With so much COVID-19 circulating, even these essentials will likely have to adjust to many people missing work due to illness. We need to anticipate that as many as a third of your workforce at any one time may become ill with COVID-19 and they may not be able to come to work. Some have pointed to the end of January as the peak of this wave, but BC is taking a more optimistic look. I won't venture to say, but I hope that it will be shorter than uh, another um, four to six weeks for sure. And to get to that end, to win the tug of war, Henry's message also clear. Everyone must pull in the same direction. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. All right, let's now take a look at the latest COVID-19 numbers for our province. We have 2,542 new cases and more than 27,000 active cases now. Nearly 300 people are in hospital. That's a jump of 78 with 86 of those patients in the ICU. 
four more people have died from complications of the virus, including one person in their 40s. Let's bring in Keith Baldry for more now. Keith, Dr. Bonnie Henry talked about the province doing a deeper dive into those hospital cases. So Mm -hmm. what is the early data on Omicron? Yeah, it's still a bit of a mystery. So 78 increase is the number from Friday, but the real number is, that's a net increase. The real number is 187 people went into hospital, an average of 46 a day. 109 people came out, which leaves 78 as the increase. But we're putting people in hospital at almost a record uh, level now over the last uh, four days. Here's how it breaks down geographically. Again, Fraser Health had 99 of those hospitalizations, uh, more than half there. Vancouver Coastal second with 37, Vancouver Island with 27 in the interior. And the North. Interestingly, Omicron now accounts for 90% of the cases in Fraser and Vancouver Coastal, which suggests most of those hospitalizations, if not all, are Omicron patients. But Dr. Henry, as you heard on the early news, says the length of stay seems to be shorter for Omicron uh, patients. But also, we're still continuing to gather data and evidence of just how Omicron works with various people. Here's Dr. Henry. Having a good understanding of, of actually how severe an illness Omicron is, cause, is causing by age and by underlying risk factors. So those are details that we still are trying to gather. We, we don't have a high number of cases yet in hospital in BC. So that's something that, as I've said, we're watching really carefully um, to better understand the actual severity of, of Omicron compared to, to Delta, for example. So a lot of work has been spent studying just that, Sophie, in the days and weeks ahead to really get a handle on Omicron. Back to the case number you read off the top. It does look low compared to previous days, but the positivity rate remains very high. About 20% of the tests are coming back positive. A little more than 12,000 people were tested yesterday, which accounts for a relatively low number. If more people are tested today, for example, we're going to have more cases tomorrow because that positivity rate doesn't seem to change. It seems to be only going up. And typically on Mondays, uh, there aren't as many tests done Mm -hmm. uh, as later in the week. So we'll see what happens as the week progresses. Thanks, Keith. Well, getting back into Canada is proving to be a challenge for many travelers right now, faced with huge challenges in booking a molecular test. As Grace Key reports, in some cases, Canadians are finding themselves stuck south of the border, searching high and low for someone who will screen them. With Omicron peaking and holiday travel wrapping up, there's been a surge in testing demand. That's left Canadians struggling to find molecular tests in the U.S. to get back into Canada. It's probably like the craziest trip of my entire life. Pedro Primo is flying from Seattle to Vancouver, unable to book an appointment elsewhere. He's in an hours-long line at SeaTac for a test, and his flight takes off in a little more than an hour. They all um, sold out of COVID tests, so... I mean, this is like my last chance to get a COVID test. It is really hard. Valerie Hayes was driving back with her parents after selling their Palm Springs property. Once we're like at about Oregon, we'll start trying to book. So for the past three nights, we've been trying to book um, a PCR test. We've gone, we started out going to pharmacies. We, we've been to so many different websites, but you can't get an appointment until January 10th. The systems are completely overwhelmed. Travel expert Claire Newell is a fan of self-administered tests you pre-buy and take with you. Available through WestJet and Swoop and Aeroplan members with a free sign-up, internet connection is needed for video observation services. That's the route that I go because I want to know, first of all, that I can have those results within an hour. I don't have to wait 24 hours for a test result and that I can 
I know exactly how much it's going to cost. Whatever method you choose, Claire advises to book appointments well in advance and have a backup plan if something goes wrong. Even before you leave, it's part of the whole trip. You know how you do air, hotel, your testing should also just be part of that. And I actually do both. I do buy the portable self-administered kits and I pack them with me. But should something go wrong with those kits, I have a backup appointment as well, just in case. As for Valerie and her family, they were eventually allowed to enter Canada without a test and no fine. They were given self-administered kits to take home. Grace Key, Global News. Residents in long-term care are once again cut off from most of their loved ones with the return of visitor restrictions. And for some, it's just too much. Krista Dow spoke with one family who says their loved one can't handle any more isolation. They are Christmas memories forever cherished. This is the happiest I've seen her in a really long time. The matriarch of the family, Ruth, meeting her great-grandson for the first time back in December. A stark contrast to now, where feelings of isolation almost too great to bear. She has told me I want to die. I feel like I'm in prison. I'm in isolation. My grandma's not actively dying. She wishes she was. She prays for it every day. On Friday, the province limited long-term care visits to essential visitors only. The vague guidance confusing for many. So we really would like the uh, provincial health officer to come out and, and clarify and simplify what an essential visitor is. Under the new measures, Rahel Staley is unable to visit her grandmother. She's not considered an essential visitor. Only her mother is approved, meaning the entire family has been shut out. My grandma has five children. Um, only one is allowed to visit at this time. I can't imagine being my grandma laying in bed, almost deaf, almost blind, can't walk, cats it up. It's really, really terrible. Given the challenges in staffing. Meantime, Dr. Bonnie Henry trying to reassure families on Tuesday, saying the plan was always to allow more access and social visitors would be included. And the intent was always that once we got the rapid testing available and had uh, more uh, plans in place to support staffing, that we would transition to one designated social visitor per resident in addition to essential visitors. Rapid antigen tests are expected to be rolled out later this week as restrictions remain in effect for another 14 days, though each passing day feeling like an eternity. Where's the line? Uh, how long? How long are we going to keep doing this to them? Visits from family like that are literally her only source of joy. And I'm glad I have that video. Krista Dow, Global News. Well, it has been a dicey afternoon commute in some areas thanks to the snow picking up again. Senior meteorologist Christy Gordon joins us with a look at what the next 12 hours holds. Christy? <laughs> Well, Sophie, we're continuing to see snowfall in parts of the Metro Vancouver region. We're seeing big flakes from our downtown Vancouver uh, Tower Cam. Uh, big slushy flakes, I should say, because when it lands in through much of Metro Vancouver, it, that's what it is. It's very slushy on the roads and it has caused many problems. Now we're continuing to see that through the Fraser Valley right now. That's one of the hardest hit regions and will continue to be as we head through the evening hours. It is going to ease off overnight. So the totals you see here are mainly through the evening.
hours. Tonight should be mostly dry, and Sophie, tomorrow also mostly dry. But we've got a major snowstorm on the way for us late tomorrow. In fact, a winter, a rare winter storm watch is in effect, and I'll have details on that when I come back. All right, thanks for that, Christy. Property assessments are out for another year, and Metro Vancouver values have shot up again. But that's not all. The rest of the province saw big gains as well. Which regions had the high... The federal transport minister now involved in an investigation into what's being called the Sunwing Party Flight to Mexico. Details on that later. Plus. Hey, welcome to the Ultimate Hockey Fan Cave. What prompted a Victoria man to create this elaborate hockey shrine? And the pièce de résistance also coming up later. Right now, though, 2022 property assessments are out, and this time, homeowners right across B.C. are getting some sticker shock. Communities that are accustomed to modest increases are now looking at unheard-of double-digit bumps. As with many things these days, it all traces back to the pandemic. Ted Chernecki begins our coverage with the latest on Metro Vancouver and the Fraser Valley. The property assessments are out. Those in the market can pad their home equity. Those outside have sweat equity. Working ever harder to try to crack what now seems like an almost uncrackable real estate market. Yes, prices are up, and dramatically. The really eye-popping gains are happening in places like, like Chilliwack or Nanaimo or Abbotsford. Eye-popping indeed. The average price of a detached home in 2021 in Vancouver is now just under $2 million, up 16%, or $280,000. But look at how the suburbs are up more in both percentages and actual dollars. Coquitlam, just under $1.5 million, up 26%, or $312,000. Surrey at $1.4 million, up 34%, or $357,000. A detached home in Abbotsford tops a million, up 38%, or $299,000. These prices were set in July, long before the devastating floods and slides of November. I don't know that we've ever necessarily seen anything uh, you know, this big across the entire province at once. Even in the condo townhouse market, buyers would have done better buying in Surrey rather than Vancouver, where the combined average price of a condo or townhome was up just 7%, or $48,000. The townhouses are closer to, say, 10%, whereas if you get to the downtown Vancouver condo specifically, uh, those barely changed at all for 2022. I think we were quoting a, a 0 to 5% range. In Surrey, the average price is now 604000 up 18% or $94,000. But now it seems the market may be changing yet again. Prices are now so high in the Fraser Valley that those Vancouver condos are starting to look attractive. Even at those prices, they're more affordable than a single-family home, and a lot of them end up being, being rented out. In fact, Vancouver set a record for apartment sales in 2021. Analysts expect prices to continue to climb early this year as there's an all-time low of inventory for sale and demand remains high. Only when interest rates start climbing, probably after June, is this red-hot market expected to cool. Ted Chernecki, Global News. Well, while double-digit increases might be standard practice for Metro Vancouver, for countless other communities across B.C., the 2022 assessments are taking them into uncharted territory. Aaron MacArthur has that part of the story. For decades, the real estate strategy for many homeowners in Metro Vancouver was simple. Ride the never-ending wave, cash out and buy in the interior. That plan looks less forgiving in 2022. 
fewer places where the math makes sense. Assessed value is up across the board, in some cases more than 30 percent. Well, that's probably the highest jump in, of increase that I've seen in, in many years, if ever. In the Okanagan, Kelowna and Asuyus are above that 30 percent threshold, but Peachland saw a nearly 40 percent bump year over year. And the heights now stretch out of the Okanagan into the Kootenays. Places with strong tourism sectors and pent-up demand are seeing similar increases with assessed value rising by hundreds of thousands of dollars. The central and northern parts of the province still relatively affordable by comparison, but that is quickly changing. Pre-COVID, we would see maybe a half a dozen properties that sell for over 500,000. Now that's commonplace. While one of the factors driving valuations up is capital flowing out of Metro Vancouver, there is a supply crunch too. Very few new listings. The concern is first-time buyers are being squeezed out of markets in all corners of BC. What I am finding is that, um, you know, first-time home buyers are getting help from their family now, and people that are coming here from other areas are spending money, and they're spending more money than they planned, but they seem to have the money to spend it. 30% increases are not sustainable. But with working from home a viable option for more people, lifestyle choices will continue to drive buyers out of urban centres. Rural BC could be facing years of uncomfortable hikes in the price of a home. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. Up next, TFSA time. As the money grows, it's growing tax-free. The pros and cons of the tax-free savings account. And opposition to an Okanagan development proposal, even after the designers went back to the drawing board. If saving for retirement is one of your New Year's resolutions, Ottawa's tax-free option has kicked in for 2022. Consumer Matters reporter Andrea is here with more on the pros and cons of using that TFSA. And Thanks, Sophie. As of January 1st, every Canadian aged 18 and up can top up their tax-free savings account, or TFSA, or open one if they've never contributed before. The biggest pro is you put the money in and it grows tax-free. According to a 2020 BMO study, 68% of Canadians say they have a TFSA. The program started back in 2009 and allows people of age with a valid social insurance number to set money aside tax-free throughout their lifetime. The maximum contribution for 2022 is $6,000. Now, if you've never contributed before, you can contribute up to $81,500, provided you were 18 or older in 2009. The money can be withdrawn from a TFSA at any time and investment returns are never taxed. The downside is that contributions are not tax deductible. So it all depends on where you're getting the money from because that is really the only big disadvantage is that it comes out of your after-tax money and there's no tax deduction for it. Tax-free savings account contribution of 500 a month is money that you can access at any time. And it just puts it right back into your bank account with no tax consequences. If you pulled the money out of your RRSP, then you have to pay tax on that money. Now, if you don't put money into your TFSA in any given year, that contribution room simply rolls over into the next year. Now, you can find your current contribution space through four CRA online services, my account, my CRA 
represent a client if you have an authorized representative or the tax information phone service. Again, there's no deadline because the amount you can contribute just carries forward until you've actually contributed to it. But it's your responsibility to ensure you do not over contribute to your TFSA. Again, know your limit and don't exceed it. The Canada Revenue Agency can assess significant penalties for over contributions. And if you have a consumer issue for me, you can email me at consumermatters at globalnews.ca. All right. Thanks, Anne. Residents of a West Kelowna neighborhood are concerned about the latest iteration of a proposed housing development. Global's Travis Lowe explains why the density of the project has many current residents of the area up in arms. If this is a tasteful development, I'd be all in favor of it. But the proposed Seoul Aqua townhouse development along Campbell Road is still leaving a bad taste in longtime Casaloma resident Scott Rowland's mouth. The problem is that the density is too high for the, uh, for the community. The plan is for 45 to 60 townhomes on the hillside here adjacent to Campbell Road. It's a far cry from the ill-fated Blackman Bay project from the same site. A controversial hotel with 550 condos and townhouses that Calgary's Landstar Development Corporation was forced to scrap by the city of West Kelowna back in 2019. We have listened to members of administration, members of council, and members of, uh, of the public. And the new scaled-down Seoul Aqua proposal is a direct result of that consultation, according to Moskovitz. This is something that we believe much better fits within the West Kelowna, and there's numerous other developments in West Kelowna, and in fact, in and around the Okanagan, that would be very similar. And while that may be true, an informal survey of area residents by the Casaloma Community Association says opposition still exists. Yeah, we polled uh, just under 300 residents and got a, about a 67% response rate. According to Holt, 75% of those who responded were still against the Seoul Aqua proposal. I think there's still some concerns with uh, the fact that Casaloma is a one- uh, road in, one road out community. A community that feels it's being inundated by development. Directly to the north, uh, in Shelter Bay, there's 108 townhomes being built at the moment, so that compounds the issue. Holt says he'll bring the community association's concerns to the West Kelowna City Council when the public hearing is held, which is scheduled to take place this winter. Travis Lowe, Global News, West Kelowna. Coming up, a plane full of partiers. The Montreal to Mexico flight that's caught the attention of the authorities and not in a good way. Also ahead, bye-bye BlackBerry, why the iconic smartphones are no longer in service. been a busy evening commute and traffic is finally starting to ease off over here at the Portman Bridge. Don't forget, though, ongoing winter maintenance has the HOV lane blocked off in both directions. Through a new charitable partnership between Kermac Cares for Kids and Surrey Memorial Hospital, when you choose Kermac Collision and Autoglass, you also support the Surrey Memorial Children's Health Centre. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Centre. 
Federal ministers and indigenous leaders announcing the details today of a landmark deal to compensate First Nations children harmed by an underfunded child welfare system. Global's David Aiken has more on the agreement. This historic settlement of $40 billion has been a long time coming. It has been decades, in fact, in the making, but an agreement in principle now exists to provide billions in compensation for the harm done to tens of thousands of First Nations kids removed from their home and placed in foster care, and billions more to prevent such harm from ever happening. For the first time, math and science will dictate the numbers. This is what it costs to deliver child and family services in our communities. Ottawa will pay out $20 billion in compensation to children and their families harmed by what the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal have found were discriminatory practices. Payments will be made to an expected 110,000 First Nations children removed from their home anytime after 1991, up until now, and placed in foster care. And payments will also be made to 60,000 or more First Nations children who had medical treatment denied or delayed because of federal-provincial squabbling over who should pay for that care. No amount of money will ever be the right amount, nor will it bring back a childhood lost. But today is about acknowledgement, about being seen and heard. Payment details will be worked out over the months ahead, and they must still be approved by the Federal Court of Canada. But each child or their family should receive at least $40,000 and possibly more. All parties hope to have the check sent out by the end of this year. Ottawa will also set aside another $19.8 billion over the next five years to improve child welfare services in First Nations communities. Much of that money is expected to be used to build new housing and to provide new services. Now, even as Ottawa puts this case behind it, there are other legal matters involving Indigenous plaintiffs that are still outstanding, including a suit by 105 First Nations who seek compensation for harm done to their entire communities by the residential school system. David Aiken, Global News, Ottawa. The families who lost loved ones in a downed Ukrainian Airlines flight nearly two years ago were set to speak about an historic settlement. They had been awarded over $100 million, but the virtual press conference to mark this small victory amidst an unspeakable tragedy was interrupted by hackers. Global's Catherine McDonald reports. I have to tell you, in my heart of hearts, I, I expected this. I knew that if we put it together properly and were tenacious in, in pursuing it, that we would get to this result. Nearly two years after a terrorist attack on Ukrainian Airlines Flight 762, a Superior Court judge has awarded $107 million in damages to six Ontario families who lost loved ones on the plane, which was shot down by the Islamic Republic of Iran. We know that this is the first of its kind in Canada, uh, uh, a damages award for Terrorism. As lawyers explained, the ruling is a condemnation of terrorism. Just want to say you are Mark, thank you. You did a great job. Just 10 minutes into a virtual news conference, as families of victims were speaking, a shocking interruption. Could I ask that everybody go on to mute, please, that isn't speaking? 
unknown trolls hijacked the virtual meeting and forced the organizers to start over. The meeting resumed 30 minutes later to a select group of media and families of victims who were sent a new link. The Iranian regime has power, has money, has connection, they has everything. As you, you saw what happened just in the press conference. They just, they just hacked the, the conference. While lawyers would not answer how they plan to collect the money, Shaheen Mogadam, who lost his 39-year-old wife Shakiba Fagati and his 10-year-old son Rostin Mogadan believes it will come, but says it makes no difference. How much do, are you going to get for me? One million, 10 million, 20 million? Can you bring back Rostin and let, him, let me play with him in the backyard? It's no, it's not possible. He will now focus on the two-year anniversary of his wife and son's death on Saturday. They are totally satisfied, which I didn't stop. And I did whatever I could and I will do. I'm not going to stop. Catherine McDonald, Global News. Well, if you are still using an old BlackBerry, time's up. As of today, the Canadian-based company has announced it will no longer support its classic devices operating on BlackBerry 10 or earlier software, meaning all devices not running on Android software will no longer be able to use data, the Internet, send texts, or make calls. An arrest has been made in connection with a mask dispute that turned ugly at a Vancouver supermarket. It happened at around 8 o'clock on Monday morning. Police say a shopper at a Robson Street IGA was asked to put on a mask but refused. The suspect then allegedly pulled out a large meat cleaver and threatened the employee before taking off without paying for his groceries. He was quickly arrested while trying to leave in a cab. Police say these types of mask disputes have become more common since COVID numbers started rising again. We had an incident just last week where a couple of people riding on a bus uh, got into a conflict and that resulted from somebody who's taking exception to another bus rider who wasn't wearing a mask. That turned into a, a physical altercation where somebody was seriously injured. In this incident, it was a shopper in a store and the staff simply asked the, uh, the shopper to put on a mask. 23-year-old Cody Eklund has now been charged with robbery and has been released on bail. Canada's transport minister has called for an investigation into video posted online of a party breaking out on a flight from Montreal to Mexico. The video shows a group of Quebec social media influencers and reality TV performers who had chartered the December 30th flight dancing, drinking, vaping and taking selfies with no masks, all of which are against COVID regulations. The union representing Sunwing flight attendants says the unacceptable behavior put the cabin crew at enormous risk. Transport Minister Omar Alhabra tweeting that he is aware of the incident and has asked Transport Canada to investigate. Coming up, a seven-year-old takes on City Hall. It doesn't matter what your age is, as long as you can do it and you're ready to try. And try she did. Her campaign to make streets safer and what she wants to do next. Plus, I just love it. It's like a hobby, and it turned into this. How a BC man has scored with the ultimate hockey fan cave. All right, Christy Gordon is here with a look at our forecast. We've been watching this uh, snow event of today pretty closely, Christy, but it's just a very small preview of what's to come. I'm a little freaked out. <laughs> yeah, I... 
Are you? Oh, yeah. Well, I guess you should be. Yeah, the snowfall is going to be fairly heavy and widespread across the region. I'm going to break down the timeline for you. Uh, Here's a quick look at how much, though, we're expecting. So this is a rare winter storm watch for our region. We don't often get those. Uh, One of the reasons is we don't often get 10 to 20 centimeters of snow all across the region. So this is mainly from Wednesday evening through Thursday morning. But I'm going to break down the timeline for you starting right now. So still a few flurries expected this evening. Those flurries will shift in through the interior overnight. Two to four centimeters expected. Generally, today, tomorrow is going to be dry across the region, but tomorrow afternoon, the snow will pick up across Vancouver Island. It will be heavy at times. Commute home across Vancouver Island could be a tough one. Metro Vancouver will start to see the snow pick up through the evening hours tomorrow, and it will be heavy through the evening overnight hours. Even into Thursday, we're still expecting snowfall, although a lot of areas will see a transition to rain by that point. But there's that winter storm watch with widespread 10 to 20 centimeters of snow expected and that's the case in through the interior mainly Wednesday night into Thursday afternoon you'll see that heavy snow expected across mountain passes as well and continuing to be extremely cold in through the far north with wind chills down to minus 50 expected tonight so we're talking about the risk of frostbite within minutes even during the day tomorrow we're expecting wind chills of only minus 40 so not much of an improvement so tomorrow lull in the action For the interior regions, you'll start to see it tomorrow night. South Coast, Vancouver Island, tomorrow afternoon. Metro Vancouver will start to see it in the evening hours. So it could affect the commute home across Metro Vancouver tomorrow, but more likely Thursday morning commute. It is going to be very heavy, widespread. We're talking about 10 to 20 centimeters of snow. In the meantime, this is a scene from today from Burnaby. Thank you to Grant Matisse for that. Love that wintry scene. Great composition there. Thanks so much, Grant. Beautiful. Thank you, Christy. All right, this is another one of those feel-good stories we probably all need right about now. A young girl takes on a major project to save lives and succeeds. As Madagahi reports, it appears seven-year-old Ariane Dealman is only getting started. Dear Town Council, There have been many letters written that start this way. I think I'm probably going to keep it with me to remind myself of what I did and how I did it. Thank you. But very few will leave behind such legacy and be signed by a six-year-old. Ian Dillman, I am six years old then, which is now seven almost eight. This is Ariane Dillman. In her neighborhood, she's recognized. You're famous. <laughs> for her contribution to what has turned out to be quite the infrastructure project. Thanks for reminding me, Mom. I almost forgot. You see, this crosswalk in front of her home is new. Even though there's a crosswalk here, you still gotta look. And it wouldn't be here if it wasn't for her and the time her brother was almost hit by a car. So I asked my grandma, because she was the one walking home with us, can I do anything about this? Like make a crosswalk or something? On top of that letter, she collected dozens of signatures in support, even supplied the blueprint. We were so impressed by this young lady and the work that she had done to, to make this happen, so we sent it to our Transportation Technical Committee, and we saw, yes, there, there was a concern here. The studies found cars were taking the corner fast, right at the spot many needed to cross. Ariane was right. This is fun. And her leap into civic politics was a success. More articulate than, frankly, some elected officials I know, too. Just a really smart young lady. Good. Let's go. 
She does have a lot of other ideas and she's always writing out letters that she wants us to send to people. And I think that this really did boost her confidence in that. And despite this newfound fame, she's still quite humble. When the people were building the crosswalk, my little brother Jackson would always be like, my sister made this crosswalk and I'd always blush and be a little embarrassed. And Ariane has a lot of people to thank. Her grandma, those who signed, her friend Ash's mom. And my family for making this possible. And before moving on to her next big project. Help stop global warming because it's not good for things like Antarctica and the polar bears. She plans to enjoy this one for a little while longer. That way, that way, good. Emadagahi, Global News. Jackson. Can't wait to see your take on global warming. Save the polar bears. All right. Uh, Bruce Boudreaux is a movie star? Yes, he is many things. Mm. He also was a bit player in the movie Slapshot. It brings back great memories uh, when you see anything that has to do with Slapshot. Mm, that's him in the movie. He'll tell you how his apartment actually got a bigger role in the movie than he did. And later, a BC man takes his hockey hobby to a whole new level. All right, here's Squire with sports. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, to a lot of NHL analytics people and stat heads, the old plus-minus rating is just that, old, antiquated, not the kind of stat you want to be relying on when judging a player. But one of the Canucks' younger players does pay attention to plus-minus. It's Quinn Hughes. He hated the fact that last season he was a minus 24. The year before that, he was a minus 10. This year, he's a plus 10. He still is adding a lot to the Vancouver Canucks offense, but he's trying to make sure that does not come at the expense of the Canucks defense when he's out there. I think the majority of it is just a mindset and, um, you know, not wanting people to score on you and um, defending hard and not making it easy. And I think that's a big thing, too. Finally dug free by Hughes, who carries out. But, um, you know, now I'm just taking it, uh, like, personal when you get scored on, I guess, and... I don't want to get scored on, and I think it's just a mindset change. No, Hughes has been great for us this year. Um, you know, he uh, he does. He takes a lot of pride in his defensive game right now, and, you know, a true pro in this league that, you know, you say you're going to go do something in the offseason, and you go and do it and, and come back a better player, and that's what he's done. When Bruce Boudreaux was 20 years old, his first professional team was the Johnstown Jets, who played in the long-gone North American Hockey League. But the team still lives on through the most memorable hockey movie ever made, Slapshot, because Johnstown, Pennsylvania is where the movie was filmed and the Jets players were in it, including Bruce. It wasn't a cameo, it was a starring role. Well, not exactly, but Bruce was in the opening scene as a member of the Hyannisport Presidents. He's number seven, right there. Don't blink, you might miss him. Okay, let's do it this way. There he is, in Slapshot. It was a great experience. Who would have thought in 1976 when we were doing the movie that it would become the iconic classic that it was today? I was just lucky enough to play on the Johnstown Jets. A lot of the Jets were actually in the movie, most notably 
the three players who became the Hanson brothers, Dave Hanson and actual brothers Steve and Jeff Carlson. Okay, guys, show us what you got. But while Bruce Boudreaux's on-ice part was short, his actual apartment in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, was used in the movie as Paul Newman's apartment when the director of the movie found out that his was the messiest. George Roy Hill came in the dressing room and he said, uh, well, who's got the sloppiest, messiest apartment in the team? And everybody stood up and pointed to me. So I was the lucky one to get the recipient of Paul Newman uh, and the dog sleeping on my bed uh, when they did that shot. It was also in many ways the first time Boudreaux had done any coaching because he was the one who was asked to teach Paul Newman how to take a slap shot. Oh, yeah, that's all true. I mean, after a while, though, I mean, quite frankly, he wanted me just to show him how to shoot, and I went in through a 10-minute diatribe and how to do something. He said, okay, that's enough, kid. Uh, it brings back great memories uh, when you see anything that has to do with slap shot. Connor McDavid was not at Edmonton Oilers practice today after testing positive for COVID. They will run another test to make sure it's not a false positive because yesterday the Leafs' Austin Matthews tested positive on a rapid test but then negative today on a PCR test. But if McDavid does actually have COVID, it would be the second time he has had it. He also tested positive in October of 2020 and obviously made a full recovery. Toronto FC are reportedly very close to signing Italian star forward Lorenzo Insigne to a five-and-a-half-year contract, which could be worth around $13 million U.S. a year. This would be one of the biggest acquisitions in MLS history. He helped lead Italy to the Euro Championship last year. He's with Napoli right now and will be free to join Toronto this July. Okay, the Washington football team says it will have an official nickname on February 2nd. They haven't had one since they dropped Redskins in July of 2020. Now, they have said there are eight finalists for the new nickname. Here they are. The Armada, the Presidents, Red Hawks, Red Wolves, Commanders, Brigade, Defenders, and also Football Team. The one they have now is also in the mix. I mean, they already have the logo, but it is kind of a boring name, the Washington Football Team. But maybe that could be the new thing. I kind of like that. You like that? Yeah. Would you like the Canucks to be the Vancouver Hockey Team? Just the, yeah. Who's your who's your team? The hockey team. It's very it's very it's very European soccer. I like it. Okay. All right. Th- All right. That's your vote. Thanks, Squire. Well, why go to the game when you can bring the game home to you? We'll show you the ultimate hockey fan cave next. If you love hockey, you'll love this. We're about to take you to the ultimate hockey fan cave, complete with a goalie pad couch and a Zamboni beer dispenser. Jada Rant has more on tonight's This is BC. Hey, welcome to the ultimate hockey fan cave. Ken Shaw has had some free time to tap into his creativity. To make space, his hockey hideaway has undergone rapid expansion into the backyard. He's built a mini rink, complete with floodlights and a goal light. There's some VIP seating. This is our upside-down goal net, which we 
call our ultimate hockey love seat. Some subtle touches like the nod to Excalibur and helmet and stick wind chimes. But the marquee addition is the Zamboni, a purchase made in Parksville, now rigged to serve three different types of beer. And it will soon be able to sleep one or two people, somewhat comfortably. We're going to be building a, a bed and putting it inside so you can crash out. This is our goalie corner here. Shaw started this seven years ago after free tickets to a Canucks game turned into a very expensive trip. Ended up costing me over $1,000 because we had to pay for the ferry to get back and forth, the accommodation, the gas, the parking, the food. So he and some friends built the ultimate hockey fan cave to bring the game home instead. Largest tabletop hockey game in the world. We made some chip bowls out of hockey helmets. Bobby Orr, Jean Beliveau. Wayne Gretzky. There are over 10,000 hockey sticks making up floors and furniture, doing his part for the environment by keeping them out of the landfill. We gave planet Earth an assist. We've got eight TVs in here. Before the pandemic, 20 to 30 people would often fill this room on game night, but everyone's had to adapt. This is for the COVID time, so we made a stick, so if you want to hand somebody a beer, you kind of stretch it out across the bar and hand them a beer. Someday the cave will be packed again, but right now Ken has a lot of room to enjoy the fruits of his labor on his leather couch made of old goalie pads. Sometimes I just grab the goalie pillow and I stretch out and I watch a game right here. I just love it and so it's, it's like a hobby and it turned into this and it, it makes a lot of people happy. Jay Durant, Global News. And if you know someone who has a great story to tell or something unique to BC, email your ideas to Jay at thisisbc at globalnews.ca. Squire, you had a... I love that story, but I have to say that he must have hit those goalie pads with more Febreze than you've <laughs> ever seen in your life because that could be a nasty aroma if you just got them right out of a dressing room. Yeah, no kidding. All right, final word on the weather, Christy. So we're still expecting flurries tonight, a dry day tomorrow, but heavy snow expected tomorrow night and a risk of freezing rain expected in the Fraser Valley on Thursday. All right, be safe out there, everyone. Have a good night.